Okay. Hello and welcome to A People's History of Violence, the podcast where we do deep dives into history's crimes, coups, conspiracies, assassinations, affairs, cover-ups, assassinations. You suggested that. Yeah, I like that one. Terrors and trials. I am, as always, your co-host Isaac. I'm your co-host Peter. And uh, I think this is episode 22. We uh, we took a we took a bit of a break. Yeah. Um, we had to cool down our big hot brains. Yeah, yeah. We were we were going too fast to cleanse ourselves in the waters of Lake Minnetonka. Where's Minnetonka? Minnesota. Oh, it's near Prince's house. Um, That's why I know the reference. <laughs> The David Chappelle. But uh, no, seriously, we, we have other jobs that we do. Uh, <laughs> but not talking too much about that, we uh, we had to go on vacation. Probably should have warned y'all. But a lot happened since we recorded our last episode in the world of, of crime. And I don't think we have enough time to cover everything. But let's see, like, former President Donald Trump got indicted for, like, the, the least yeah, case yeah. that you could indict him yeah, for. Not, yeah. Not, like, literally sending messages of being, like, how do we how do we make up certificates so that these electors become real ones and, mm. and sneak them into a state house? Yeah, um, like the actual, which along with being more severe, I would imagine, is also like an actual political issue. Yeah. Well, I guess you should being respectful of sex workers is also a political issue. Yeah, I mean he he's 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 paying them off and and double triply so. Is that yeah. what's respectful though? I don't know. Is it, he's is kind it, of a jerk about it. Yeah, he was kind of a jerk about it, and then he, you know, I would not trust him to be a good job. On a better piece of uh, more obscure news uh, that just happened, uh, Rodney Reed, who was on Texas death row for a murder that that seems very likely was committed by the the husband of the victim, a uh, police officer, Jimmy Fennell who was subsequently convicted of, like, raping a woman he detained, mm, mm. seems to be the bigger suspect in that case. And uh, the weapon is now finally going to get tested for DNA, which it seems like should have happened. A while ago, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But the state's been fighting that quite a bit. And it's actually gone to the Supreme Court. And believe it or not, this Supreme Court said that they could do that. Hmm. Interesting. Just today, here in our neck of the woods. Yeah, our beautiful, our beautiful boy. Um, probably most most prominently known for being a, a former guest on this show. Yes. Former presidential candidate and congressman Dennis Kucinich had declared his support as an advisor for Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Mm. Uh, so just as a as an aside, because I'm not gonna drag Dennis Kucinich here. Yeah. Um, he's obviously done a lot of good things. And yeah. you know, you can listen to our episode on that, but more importantly, he's a historical figure. Yes. Um, and definitely for, for Cleveland. But just in case anyone's confused or like, I don't know, looking for, for bad stuff, yeah. uh <laughs> we, we don't endorse uh RFK Jr.'s presidential campaign or campaign against vaccinations. Yeah. It's typically kind of Dennis no, You know, uh, if you're if you're gonna cancel us, you're gonna have to do better than that. Yeah, but thought I'd get that out of the way. Yeah. Oh, and, and rethink this. Can you know a couple other things did happen? You know, while we were on break, having having given you, you know, ninety minutes of of clutter, murders, mm. agricultural, yes, history, uh, history to digest, which is a uh, somewhat elsewhere neck of the woods decided to. To give away military secrets to yeah, Dighton. Uh, I know I've, I've spent time close. Nobody really spends time in Dighton unless they happen to be one of the few people who live there. 
it's kind of one of those random Massachusetts towns that time kind of forgot to pass by. What is, what does an average day like look like if you were just like to drive into or walk into Dighton? I think I don't think it has. Does like the psychosphere of Dighton explain why <sighs> someone might be just you know trolling little kids or nice fifteen? Yeah, I, I think I think just you know you could, psychosphere is a kind of fancy word for extreme boredom. Get a bad taste in my mouth out here. Aluminum, ash, like you can smell a psychosphere. I got an idea. Let's make the car a place of silent reflection from now on. Um, but yeah, it's it's part of what they call kind of the South Bay area, but not like the interesting parts like near, you know, Fall River. Uh, not that Fall River is like, you know, exactly the, the Latin quarter, but at least it's, you know, you can get a good Portuguese meal there. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Dighton, it doesn't have its own high school, for instance. It's part of the Rehoboth-Dighton system. And so when you're playing second fiddle to Rehoboth, uh, yeah, it's it's tough. I feel like we've gone so Massachusetts inside baseball. Yeah. We probably would have lost yeah, cut this. Let's cut good. this. No, no, no. We're not cutting this. Oh, damn. Like, like, people need to figure the Dighton out people are gonna deep get context of Rehoboth and Dighton. Yeah. To, to really get why the South Bay people are going to criticize me, and I don't know why, why this guy me. became a racist, anti-Semitic wannabe sniper, and his downfall was apparently just sharing documents. Yeah, to win arguments. Yeah. Like my understanding though is that this is not the first time this has happened in the gaming space. <laughs> that gamers, right. in at least one or two other instances, have leaked. My understanding is somebody did it from the British Army with like you know technically confidential or secret tank designs to win an argument in like a, a tank game because he's like all right mate, you, you think that this turret can't do this i wonder if like there's a there's a like a long trajectory of like greater inevitability of military leaks given the amount of gamers yeah. that they need to assemble to be drone operators oh, yes. and maybe like tank drone operators and just pe just people involved in you know a, a lot of military life as well as boredom there's a lot of just gamers in the military of all kinds you don't have to be a drone operator in the intelligence community like apparently it is something of a problem that they're thinking about and like how do we how do we handle this like we can't just not employ gamers because so many people especially nerds who want to join our organization are gamers it's interesting because it's a social value thing like theoretically the military is supposed to be like breaking down like certain like personality values and stuff to subordinate it to yeah. this bigger organization right yeah. and you know it's a it's a funny thing when like the 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 real organizational values that like are in people who you share intelligence with are like i need cloud among 16 year olds <laughs> to respect me online like that is my social currency yeah not 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 becoming like a a, a three-star general or, or right. whatever or you know service to the service nation. nation either careers or not it's just uh can I get this like little squeaky little prepubescent voice <laughs> to stop yelling at me online? Yeah, to win, to finally win the argument. That's so compelling to so many people. I mean, that's what they said about Jefferson Davis, right? He'd rather he'd rather win the argument than win the Civil War. Uh, whereas Lincoln, you know, it's the opposite. In the in the classic uh, like real like last post wins mold though. He just rewrote right. what he did yeah. afterwards. Smart. Yeah. So that's it from our neck of the woods. Uh, you got out to Maine. Yeah, I went to Maine. 
Uh, I didn't see any like crime. Well, no, I probably did see some things that were crimes Wait, because a couple hand to hands, couple of uh, just uh, drunken, disorderly, and uh, and and smoking weed where you're not supposed to smoke weed. But it was, it was a, a good time. It was a clutch concert. Yeah. So you know you can't you can't expect a clutch concert anywhere, but especially not in Maine, the great state of Maine. To uh, uh, but you know, seeing the concert was cool. They were playing up there, and they weren't playing down here. But what a lot of it occurred to me, I mean, you're 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 a great and accomplished traveler. But at the end of the day, what I found myself doing after the clutch show, you know, the day after, I, I just found myself like sitting in a bar, drinking cheap beer, watching they, they put it's always sunny on the TV, but they had music, they they had it muted. And like other than seeing the show, that was like the most fun I had in Portland. And it occurred to me that I really don't need to travel anywhere because i could do that very easily at home yeah it's a good town well, it is it, that's it's no shade on portland portland great a lot of great food very charming walkable good good place yeah, I'm, it's like very like nice like self-contained yes. place yeah it doesn't sprawl that much it does have like a little bit of like a stephen king like spooky darkness to it I didn't experience that, but I was there. You know, oh, the, I'm, the I'm just haunted story. and cursed. Uh, so yeah, I mean, that's probably true. The, the haunts don't bother me because they know I have the the soul of a, you know, just a bureaucrat. Like, <laughs> I, I, I'm not sensitive to haunts or fairies or, you know, any, I, I, just, I have muddy eyes. You're, you're, you're too hard-boiled. They know they can't, that's they can't right. tap into your superstition. Yeah. And, uh, you know, are, are we talking about your travels as well? If we want, I I you mean, went all over. Yeah, I went. I I actually went up to Toronto for a day, and I, yeah. I saw Armor from. Oh, uh, yeah, hey, you know, from Radio Warner and Das Criminal fame. He's great, great to talk to. Yeah, uh, I owe him beers when he comes to Boston. Yeah, uh, and then I I went to uh, to Hawaii to go surf really badly for a few days. So uh, so where do we leave off here with? In cold blood and mm. the clutter murders, our main subject of today. Yeah, life was not going well for for Mister Clutter last we left him. Yeah, life is not going well, uh, despite being very successful uh, as a result of kind of fitting this ideal type of the new modern farmer, extremely tight, buttoned up, mm -hmm. uh, scientifically literate, able mm -hmm. to uh, and able to kind of secure loans and, and work local politics rationalizing the countryside yeah he got a huge estate uh, a vast empire as the local newspaper called it uh but it looked like in his last months alive he that empire was kind of collapsing he was selling off a third of his domain secretly unannounced in the newspapers even though it was confirmed by two people yeah. to police investigators he'd taken out a life insurance policy within 24 hours of getting killed with double indemnity so that if he was killed his beneficiaries would get double and debtors wouldn't our debt claimants wouldn't get a piece of that pie mm. even if they had loaned him a bunch of money it seemed all pretty uh suspicious then he took up smoking which apparently he thought was evil and fire people for yeah so we've heard all the this bad stuff about about herbert clutter you know his life and what's been going on with him but i mean obviously that we the people who did it should be the subject of our investigation rather than the poor victim <laughs> exactly so a lot of truman capote's book and i mean any 
everybody talking about this case is focuses on the two killers, Richard Eugene Hickok and Perry Edward Smith. And, and we kind of glossed over this a little bit, but Hody's portrayal of them is basically that Dick Hickok is this kind of, um, how to put this, pretty much like kind of glib, charismatic, yeah. psychopathic character. I, this is probably best expressed in like the scene in the book where he just repeatedly shows Dick Hickok like driving a car. And as soon as he sees a dog crossing the mm. road, which apparently happens a lot, yeah, he people... turns towards the dog and mm. hits it on purpose and yells splat. Yeah. Uh, and then Perry Edward Smith is like a deeply troubled mm. loner who has kind of delusions about finding missing treasure, looking at his mm. maps. And he's portrayed as almost this like lost out of his time romantic poet type who's kind of deeply disturbed by... So, so compare it to the to the most important crime pair of all time. You know, Hickok would be the Tamerlane, and Smith would be the Jokar Sarnayev. Yeah. Like he's a dreamy one you'd put on the cover of Rolling Stone. Yes, yes. I mean, famously, um, Boston strong folks. <laughs> uh, famously, Perry Edward Smith provided the big entry into Hollywood for the actor Robert Blake, hmm. who had his own. Run-ins with the law, right? Yeah, maybe that maybe that'll be a little little subsidiary mm-hmm. episode. A little on the yeah. yeah, for the for this for the real heads. But yeah, the the usual portrayal is that these two guys are the kind of the sad demonic losers to be the foil for Herb Clutter, the upstanding, unimpeachable, nice uh, winner of mm. the the game of America. Mm. I guess. And that's kind of supposed to be like the big mythic portrayal here. I, I think what we've even you know kind of shown and laid the steps for in the last episode is that Smith and Hickok are in many ways like the necessary casualties, mm-hmm. the collateral damage uh, that the United States of the path the U.S. took in the 50s in building up people like Herbert Clutter and I mean probably more importantly like company farm. Yeah. Both of these were rural people who in their injuries and in kind of where they ended up on the economic mm. ladder and just kind of kind of being agricultural proletariat. Yeah. Really were the casualties in the the, the bottom of the totem pole of that mm. same thing. So that part is true. It's just not the same mythic portrayal of like, oh, they were they were losers. They didn't right. try hard enough. <laughs> they didn't fit onto the coal cosh. Yeah. Whatever. I'm not butchering the Russian there, but yeah, you know, they were, uh, I, I come from, uh, unlike Isaac, a, a long line of people who have refused adamantly to move west of, like, the Susquehanna River. Uh, we, 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 <laughs> we, we stick, we, we cling to the shore, and that's kind of worked out for us, to be perfectly honest, because we're not the biggest bunch of go-getters in the world, but we, you know, we, we follow the rules and keep our heads down, and, and that can work out if you're, if you, if you're lucky enough to be in the regions where capitalism has, for whatever reason, like dispensed its largesse more mm-hmm. like it has in, in Massachusetts. Yeah. But, you know, and I always think of of the sort of, you know, Americans are Americans. I don't want to get too much into regionalism, but I do think there's a pretty marked difference in like the culture of the, you know, quote unquote normal stay-at-home types like 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 my family and the people who just made that decision to like leap out into like these marginal lands. Like I'm not talking about like the Midwest here. I'm talking about like the like uh, well I am partially, but like we're as we're gonna see, some of these guys uh come from places who where where people 
go when it's the end of the line. Yeah. Certainly by then, because there was always this promise that if you kept going west and kept trying to do something even riskier and more marginal than walking into nowhere, claiming a part of land, plot of land and risking your living on the soil, that you will eventually win it big. And that will always come to the end of the line. It's always going to catch up to you at some point. And in many respects, like Isaac's been saying, U.S. Uh, agricultural and social policy helped make it that there was nowhere to go back to. Right. Right. Because you weren't going to, the farms of the clutters or the ADMs of the world didn't need an agricultural proletariat of the same kind, even if these people were willing to be that. Yeah. And I mean, the, the kind of the ultimate stop in trying to go back to somewhere for both Smith and Hickok was, of course, prison. Mm. Yes. You know, you run out of opportunities, so then you try to make it by doing crime. Yeah. And then become the subject of the show. Yes. <laughs> and we're going to talk about that. Um, and I don't mean this as a criticism, Capote, but I did want to bring up that there's a really... Since we're talking about these two guys as they and one more person, Foy Wells, as the main subjects of this episode, I don't mean this as a criticism of Capote, but there's a really weird unconscious paradox in Capote's book, which is the kind of the bridge between the uh, more familiar true crime demon characters that we're familiar with today, just from like turning on TV at any time, and uh, a kind of a sympathetic uh, outlaw loser narrative that used to exist before is... Even though Smith is portrayed as the more empathetic, the more human of the characters, uh, and Hickok is clearly meant to be like the the demon of the two, mm-hmm. Smith is by far the more violent one. Yeah. And Hickok is simply not. Mm-hmm. Um, Smith appears to actually have more trouble like holding down relations with other people. Mm-hmm. Hickok does not. And mm-hmm. so it ends up being this strange parrot. And I want to get out of the way before we talk about them more that neither of these guys is stupid. Yeah. They may be dumb at crime or like fuck ups in life or what yeah. you want to say in, in, in whatever depiction, but they're portrayed uh, either one Hickok or both Smith as like dumb Hicks yeah. in pretty much everything you read. And just going through their Kansas State penitentiary files, neither of them is. Yeah. Um, Smith read extensively he just literally didn't have opportunities in his life that part yeah. of Capote's book is right but Capote also portrays Hickok as talking this kind of like country twanged like mm. like dumb like well don't worry about that mm, yeah like militant stupidity and that's wrong too he actually tested out as like I like some genius IQ oh. in the prison testing he repeatedly had jobs but then was affected by injuries that we'll talk about mm. so it's just not there. And this is a complicated thing for people to internalize that you could have the person who has more problems with empathy and could come up with these violent schemes be nevertheless the less violent one and the more sociable one. Mm. The one who has more attachments to other people and is you know, at times more sympathetic to him. Mm. You never find out in Capote's book that Hickok has four kids. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. that his wife actually thought he was a good dad, which is really weird. If you read Capote's book, it just seems impossible. Yeah, he's just a drifter. Yeah. They're both just portrayed as drifters, but neither of them was really... I mean, Smith, at the time that he got into prison, was absolutely a drifter yeah. of a sort. But that's not what he was for most of his life. Mm-hmm. Well, the year leading up to that point, he was. That's it. Right. So I think in this episode, we'll talk... We'll do a deep dive on these guys... 
in their biographies and really explain the reality here. Mm. And we'll talk about the institution that really brought this crime about, that brought these threads of Hutter's collapsing empire together with these two very damaged men. Mm. And that is the Kansas State Penitentiary, or as uh, Lester Douglas Johnson, the author of the same name novel calls it, um, the devil's front porch. And uh, mm -hmm. I should probably do some acknowledgments of sources here. We've acknowledged the last episode, Gary McVoy's book, and every word is true, as well as the Kansas State Penitentiary Files. Found a lot of newspaper clippings for this episode, which is why we're going to have new stuff that no one's ever actually mm. ever covered before and really changed my perspective on a lot of things about this particular aspect of the case. Mm. And uh, also relying on this episode in part on uh, David Hickok's uh, memoir, In the Shadow of My Brother's Cold Blood, which is not yeah, the best yeah. title. That's not um, but yeah, what can you do? And interestingly enough, and I'll get into this in a bit, uh, this guy, Eric Swanson's YouTube channel mm. and Facebook page, uh, he was a former inmate for 11 years at Kansas State Penitentiary at Lansing. Mm. And what was shocking to me is how much of what he said was going on in the 2010s is exactly the same, like right down to little like cultural mores and slang wow. as what was going on with Lester Douglas Johnson in the 40s. That's amazing. So just decades and decades and decades of continuity there mm. in this old decaying prison. So Hickok and Smith, one thing to talk about with these two people, and you know, Hickok is portrayed, he's this like kind of glibly handsome but kind of messed up guy. Uh, both Hickok and Smith were actually physically disabled and visibly so. And in Smith's case, like really obviously and severely so. Mm. And rather than just Perry Smith, I found out that both Hickok and Smith were ex-servicemen. Mm. Something that never came out in any of the books that I read. And I looked at all of the source books on this. Richard Eugene Hickok was enlisted in the United States Marine Corps. He was put into the reserve during the Korean War, and, but he was in Chicago and at some point put out in San Diego. Mm. Now, Smith is much more well-known to have been in the service. He served in the United States Virgin Marine and then went into the Army for several years and served in the Korean War. Mm -hmm. But what wasn't really described in accuracy was the extent to which these two guys were disabled um, in Smith's case, by the by being a part of the American Imperial War Machine, in, in as Korea. you might call it, in Korea, and in both their cases, by being smashed up by cars. Oh. I mean, yeah. really smashed up. That's going to be a risk in your highly mechanized army. So, one thing that... Uh, so stop saying one thing, one thing. But I will go on record as saying that I think the clutter murders would not have happened because if Perry Smith was able to collect a paycheck from anything, he probably wouldn't have turned to a crazy, wild scheme of murdering a family. And he could have gotten a paycheck through disability. Right. Which so if he could have gotten on that, you're saying the clutter murders would not have happened. Probably not, because he wouldn't have even drifted into Kansas, and he mm. definitely wouldn't have taken this wild scheme for a job. Interesting. Probably would have just stayed in Alaska or Washington. Mm. But... Very I suppose surprising. I suppose that's a theory, but or maybe they need to find somebody. You know, if we're going with the theory that that somebody set them up, yeah, so that they would need to find somebody else to set up that situation yes, for sure. 
But the key thing is that Perry Smith couldn't walk too good. Oh, okay. Which is something you kind of need to do as a truck driver. Yeah. And that's exactly what he was before he was severely injured and disabled. Yeah. Social Security disability, which he would have totally been able to apply to had it been passed uh, three years before. Mm Mm-hmm. Wasn't around at that time. I see. So as a result, no income, drifting around the country, uh, no legal jobs. Mm-hmm. And instead, just alone with his thoughts and obsessions. Perry Smith, to get into a little more detail about it, he was born in Elko, Nevada, really small town, population 3,000. He's lived in rural areas his entire life. So mm-hmm. he's a part of this rural system. His parents, uh, Florence Julia Flo Buckskin and John Tex, in mm. quotes, Smith, uh, they were uh, part of a rodeo type show, a kind of like late period Wild Bill Hickok, mm. you know, parody of the West thing to kind of make Perry Smith's heritage accessible or understandable for his audience. Capote described him as being part Cherokee. Mm. It turns out it was uh, two other Native American or First Nation, if you're Canadian, uh, tribes that weren't Cherokee, but he just made a Cherokee because yeah. more Americans know Cherokee. Yeah, New Yorker readers. Yeah, New Yorker readers, exactly. But suffice to say, given that they were in this sort of uh, itinerant rodeo show, traveling around type existence, and given the uh, obviously widespread discrimination and poverty of Native Americans in the like, 1920s and 30s, you can imagine that his... Childhood was very poor, and I mean, it, he had a, a he had a really bad one. It's been called like, oh, he had a sad childhood. Mm-hmm. Well, no, he was abducted from his parents by child services and put into a Catholic orphanage Oof. where he was molested. Yeah. Okay, so like, no one should be saying like, oh, Perry Smith had a sad childhood. I did too. Yeah. No, no were, you, is, were you abducted and put into yeah, like child yeah. prison sex we're, camp? Are, are you the product of an apocalyptic genocide inflicted yeah. upon your people and then you were abducted and put into a rape camp? Yeah, no, no unlikely. <laughs> yeah, because occasionally people who are afflicted with that circumstance have some problems. Yeah, every now and again. Yeah, so... We should be surprised that... Well, go, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. I, we should be surprised that, you know... There's not, if we believed in kind of the pop theory that you mistreat people and the more you mistreat them, the more they have a backlash against you. And that's where kind of violence comes from. Then, you know, and I get the, I get that theory. And I get that it's often a more humanistic theory than the theory of, oh, just some people are evil. And so they do bad stuff. But if you took it literally, then like, Native Americans would just be killing us all the time, would just be murdering people constantly and lighting everything on fire, Because given the way that they've historically been treated and still are in many cases. Like all the people who had been through those schools would have done way more than Perry Smith did. Uh, Just saying. Um, Yeah. That said, you know, he's he is by all accounts at this time, you know, a very like passive, soft spoken boy. He acquires wounds, however, that stay with him. He became a, a trucker when he came back from the Korean War, I found out. In Washington State in Yakima County, he got into a motorcycle accident in July or August of 1952, and he was hospitalized for a year. Mm. So Again, it's portrayed in, in a lot of the literature. It's like he he had a little accident. 
Mm-hmm. And he was limping on a right leg. Do you realize how bad you have to be messed up to be hospitalized for, for a year? In in the 50s and you're poor, you probably can't pay the bill properly. And Exactly. And that becomes a real issue with Dick Hickok mm-hmm. in particular. Yeah. So he's hospitalized for a year. He was on crutches for nine months after that. So during all that time, you can imagine he's not doing much trucking. Mm. In 1954, to add on to this, and why I say I think the important thing you have to know is that Perry Smith is disabled. So having been in the hospital for a year and on crutches for nine months, he then got into another motorcycle accident in Anchorage, Alaska. He was hospitalized for this time only four months. So he was he was his his legs were not in good shape. No, and, and I mean this is like a this is just what it's like, I guess, to, to really and to some extent, just to be in this very changed society where formerly you had rural areas that were pretty isolated. You could go from place to place without mm-hmm. worrying too much about cars hitting you. Right. And at this time, I looked it up like 19, the early 50s were like a really a real hype for people just crashing these long cars yeah. into each other. And there were no seatbelts. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, the, and the glass was basically just guillotine, so many guillotines ready to behead you when you go through it, et cetera, I love, uh, not, you know, 50s car fetish isn't as stupid. I like those old 70s gunboats, like a a Galaxy 500, Mm -hmm. but, like, they're just, the safety stuff is is just so bad. Because you will, among other things, like, if you get into a collision, a head-on collision, you're just going to have the engine in your lap. Yeah, that's not good. You don't want that. Uh, yeah, speaking of uh, terrible head-on collisions, in in keeping with the fact that there's something underlying going on here, both these people end up with very similar circumstances and injuries. Richard Hickok grew up in um, what he described as like a much more comfortable childhood, a mm. you know still hard scrabble farm existence in Olathe, Kansas, with his dad getting by, his dad having obviously been pushed off of just doing farming and became a mechanic mm. servicing these cars on the side of the mm. road and servicing that new post-war yeah. individual consumption car economy but so he grew up with cars mm. but he also had a life-changing injury and another incident that might be key to changes later on he was involved in a major car wreck while he was dating his uh, eventual wife carol water on the highway caused him to lose control of his big ass car and he was ejected entirely from the car, crashing through the windshield and ending up in a ditch unconscious where he nearly drowned. Mm. Uh, a other passenger in the car, he wasn't just with Carol, flagged down an emergency vehicle and a hospital, in, uh, sorry, in an ambulance took him to Gardner, Kansas. And uh, I thought I would actually read a bit about this from David Hickok, his brother, his younger brother's book. The damage caused to Dick's face as a result of the accident left his face looking, quote, off balance. His left eye seemed to have sunk in his head. The doctor did not say that the accident had impaired Dick's vision anyway, but Dick had to wear a white patch over his eye for some time. Dick once told me that he could not see as clearly as he did before the accident. The doctor was just satisfied in having saved the eye because he thought for a time that Dick might lose sight in the eye. In other words, the doctor was like, well, we saved your eye. Like, yeah. It's not complaining. Come on. And um, you, said, you said they also experienced uh, injury in the military. Yeah. So in in Perry Smith's case, he had, uh, I found out from the prison records, and I never saw this mentioned in any of the literature. 
he had been shot through the chest. Mm. Um, in but, Korea. In Korea, but conspicuously never was awarded a Purple Heart or any kind of wounding huh. uh, or any kind of uh, recognition yeah. of being wounded in combat. And in Korea, if you read Capote's book, Harry Smith was uh, like a deuce and a half driver. Yeah. Um, he was a supply truck driver at mm. the Incheon Landing. So presumably he's, he's servicing these supply lines which are under attack by North Korean forces. But it was very heavy combat mm -hmm. um, at, at, at the time. And yeah, there's no mention whatsoever that Perry Smith got shot, but it's there in his prison record where they got his military records to compare it to. Yeah, I wonder why he didn't get the Purple Heart. And didn't talk about it either. Mm. Certainly not to, in all of his meetings with Capote or in his mm. letters, but it's just right there, plain as day in the prison record. Yeah. So, oh, and also it, it pierces left lung. Mm. So, I had that written down. Uh, Hickok's military record remains somewhat of a mystery. I did find indications that, you know, it, I, I thought it was strange that he would have been able to join a Marine Reserve unit and then not go to Korea in 1951. Mm. But apparently that's what happened. So either from the motorcycle accidents or the war also, um, Perry Smith sustained a fractured skull. Oh. So both of these guys have traumatic brain injuries. Wow. And I've earlier talked about, you know, kind of how there's a paradox between Cody and others presenting Smith as the more sympathetic, humane one. And the fact that Smith is actually the more violent one. Mm -hmm. And I did find that Perry Smith really does have this uninterrupted history of escalating violence, but it starts from his stationing in Korea and Japan. Mm. It starts from that period where it looks like a, after he got shot in the chest and after he's been in combat and quite possibly has seen some awful, awful. So that's when the violence starts to escalate. Yes. Even though he'd been abused as a boy mm -hmm. and was this orphanage and so on, the violence is there. And uh, Capote records this in his, in his, uh, is quoting Smith as this only added to my bitterness and hatred for others. I began to get into fights. I threw a Japanese policeman off a bridge into the water. Mm. I was court-martialed for demolishing a Japanese cafe. I was court-martialed again in Kyoto, Japan for stealing a Japanese taxi cab. Mm. I was in the army almost four years and I had many out violent outbursts of anger while I was served time in Japan and Korea. I was in Korea 15 months and was rotated back to the States. And I think this was taken as exaggeration or maybe just Smith is, is trying to lay groundwork for him saying that he is diminished capacity. So he can be found not guilty or at least mm. have his death sentence commuted. But I did find that much of the court martial history, although the individual entries are missing, you can't see what was charged. You can see five separate entries mm. from army court martial proceedings on his prison record. Mm -hmm. um, so they don't say details, but it corresponds exactly to as many incidents as he described, like yeah. throwing a Japanese policeman <laughs> off of a bridge, yeah. for example, or demolishing a Japanese cafe or stealing a taxi cab. And if there's a reason why he stayed a private despite being in the army for four years, right. combat, mm -hmm. Um, being wounded, being wounded and not receiving a Purple Heart. It's probably because he had gone fucking insane. Yeah. And, you know, apparently started becoming like the tip of the spear for a quasi-colonial relationship and throwing Japanese people yeah. off the bridge. Right. So did he have like a record then? So he had the record from the court martial. Did he have much of a record before he wound up in, in, in Kansas? Yeah. So the only other entries on his record until he gets uh, a burglary in Kansas, which is never just, I, I couldn't find any record uh, or in newspapers or whatever, what he was burglarizing or anything, was 
a couple of uh, resisting arrest and a reckless driving in, in Washington state, I guess, just after he, he left the state from uh, trucking and so on. Yeah. And uh, a vagrancy conviction in Worcester, Mass. Mm. How do you wind up up here? I wonder. Doesn't say. Um, in his account, he just kind of right, going from place to place, seeing where he could do jobs. Mm. We call people like drifters as if they're just like kind of like looking around, unable to kind of hold on where life's going. But the truth is, in, in, in a lot of ways, it's kind of like Jack London said in this book or essay, My Human Drift. They're, they're following unconsciously the economic pull of I need yeah. to find work yes. I need to get fed. <laughs> yeah. And that's what it looks like to me. Just starting in the West Coast and having things fall through with his father, uh, we tried to reunite, reunite with working on a reservation for a while and then drifting east mm. until he ends up in Worcester. And then mm. he's picked up in New York and, and transferred back to Kansas on an open warrant because he committed a burglary in Kansas mm. and run away. So Hickok, by contrast, never had any kind of violent documented history. What his head was is fraud, burglary auto theft he's mm. a hot car guy yeah i'm gonna skip reading directly from his record but uh, i kind of envision hickok in my mind as being consumed by like like an appetite a driven hunger that he himself even is disturbed by yeah like he can't hold back from taking stuff mm. and one thing that truly uh, strikes me about his uh, his behavior, because the, the thing that gets brought up a lot with Capote and others is whether Hickok actually had anything really wrong with him. Yeah. Right. Like he made his defense at trial that he it was kind of a sort of insanity defense. It was a diminished capacity defense that he wasn't responsible for the murders because he had a brain injury. And he had a brain injury from that traumatic car accident that left one eye. Like back. Yeah. And this act is actually corroborated by basically everyone who knew Hickok, that there was a real behavior change mm. after he had the car accident. Yeah. Somehow his brain was broken. And mm. they could, but because, you know, he's not diminished intellectually, he's right. still able to walk and talk and converse just fine. Mm -hmm. A lot of writers have assumed that he's kind of putting one on. He's faking. Yeah. Uh, to try to get out of death penalty or try to make a sob story for himself. Mm. And one thing that I really, uh, I don't credit these anymore, having looked in this file more and having seen just a kind of a weird pattern with, with Hickok, uh, one, he, he was consistent in describing blackouts yeah. that would just happen to him on occasion. His wife, Carol, who eventually left him because of his erratic behavior, said that actually he had these long periods where everything would be fine. He would become an ambulance driver, for example. He would work mm. long terms as an auto mechanic. Mm. And then he would just have periods where all of a sudden all hell broke loose. Mm. And he would go from being an irresponsible father to going and stealing cars, gambling all their money away, and mm. so on. And his family members also say that his problem with criminality, like when he started getting into not just uh, like random fights or like acts of rage or something like that, but like plan yeah. criminal acts that, you know, trying to be a gangster, right? right? Trying to get hot cars and sell them, which requires offense yes. and all that stuff. That starts from when he gets out of the hospital and can't afford that. Yeah. So there's a real economic reason for that. But yeah, it's a convergence between like this economic pincher and who are the ones that are going to get caught in the pincer. It's going to be the, the most marginal people, not just economically, but in terms of you know, people who do due to injury, disability, whatever else, are just incapable of 
Yeah, the, like broken. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, with, with Hickok, and this is kind of like my my real case that there really was something wrong with his brain, is this pattern that I was texting you about yeah. that I found in the literature, which is he gets really, really weirdly hungry and nothing can, st- nothing can yeah. stop it. And it's not just like, like, I need to eat a lot. It's specifically in these situations of like high stress, high emotion. So for example, leading up to the murders, Capote writes, Dick, meaning Dick Hickok, said, no, we need a solid tuck-in and never mind the cost. The tab was his. They ordered two steaks, medium rare, baked potatoes, french fries, fried onions, succotash, side dishes of macaroni and hominy, salad with Thousand Island dressing, cinnamon rolls, apple pie, ice cream, and coffee. Mm. And Dick Hickok eats all of it in that wow. scene. And then after the murders, though, really just Hickok uh, again, yeah. and not Smith. Hickok has the appetite and Smith is not. Uh, two young men, Capote describes this as two young men, because he's still kind of in the uh, omniscient narrator mode. Yeah, yeah. Two young men were sharing a booth at the Eagle Cafe, a Kansas City diner. One, narrow-faced Hickok, with a blue cat tattooed on his right hand, had polished off several chicken salad sandwiches and was now eyeing his companion's meal, an untouched hamburger and a glass of root beer, which three aspirin was developing. Perry Baby Dick said, you don't want that burger, I'll take it. And then again, uh, if you credit this other sighting of them, Cimarron, Kansas, they eat another clutch hamburger. God. And then arriving back at Olathe, Kansas, after the murders, Dick says, Dick said he wished he had an ox to roast. He said he had never been so hungry. This is after they've mm. eaten like two meals. Yeah. And it, you see any pictures of Richard Hickok, this is a tiny rail yeah. thin man. Yeah. He is not more than 150 pounds. He is small. Mm. At first I thought, you know, when I when I read in Cold Blood, this is like literary flourish. Yeah. He wants to portray Hickok as this demonic man, like full of appetites. And it kind of shows like how he doesn't give a shit that he just committed a murder. Right. He's more focused on his burgers, yes. chicken sandwiches. But it's not literary flourish. Uh, Richard Hickok wrote in a letter to Mac Nations, this Kansas newspaper guy who was collaborating with him on a book. That after the murder, he can remember mainly that he was incredibly hungry. Mm. So we're talking like at this point, five years after the murders, he's putting himself back in like how he felt at yeah. the time. He's like, I was hungry. Quote, boy, was I hungry. Yeah, that's yeah. Hyperphagia always freaks me out. I mean, speaking of someone who, who likes to eat, you know, yeah. I'm not exactly a skinny pickle myself, but compulsively doing it, that always weirds me out. And, you know, it being like this rea- this reaction to something and somehow I'm not getting weight from it. Like, that's just like kind of spooky. Yeah. And, and actually, there was another account when, when Hickok gets back where his dad is just like, yeah, he ate all of our food. Mm. Just ate us out of house and home. And hyperphagia is a symptom of organic brain injury. It huh. can be on a variety of occasions. I, I'm not a neuroscientist, but I came across a variety of papers that just talked about hyperphagia being a symptom of yeah. post-concussion victims and, and so on. That seems to be, well, the, the literature kind of speaks for itself there. Mm. Now, obviously, this has to be weighted against the fact that both of these guys, Perry Smith with his traumatic childhood and his own automobile injuries and Dick Hickok with his injuries from the car, they're both bringing this up because they yeah. are trying to argue diminished capacity. Yes. They're trying to argue that they're not responsible for the murder because something is wrong with their brains. Mm-hmm. But there's real facts here. Yeah. I think we're less, in, I mean, you know, it's water under the bridge. I think we're less interested in, you know, saving the lives or even necessarily the reputations right. of these killers 
and more just trying to get at what we're actually looking at with these crimes. Yeah, and as you said, Peter, these it's these types of people who become the usable material yes. in a plot by mm -hmm. an interested party. Yeah. You know, and I think the truth is that the link between these two people and probably how they became so closely associated in, in prison, you know, it's not just like you decide like, oh, you are my Sally. Of course, I'll travel yeah. around the country to Mexico, back to Florida, whatever right. with you. They had to be bonded probably because they were broken people, yeah. including both being in Physically traumatic, broken. yeah, traumatic car accidents. Yeah, and, and so probably on. in chronic pain. Yeah. Chronic physical pain probably all the time, especially in Perry Smith's case. Mm. Now, I should say, though, that both of them converged on a goal while in the devil's front porch, which was to become professional criminals. Yeah. The, the stated reason why they committed the murders was they thought they were going to get paid. Mm -hmm. The amount changes over time mm -hmm. in their stories, but they were thought they were going to either find a safe or get paid in some other way. Hickok, Hickok's letters intimates that he thought he would get paid as a hitman, basically, and that they would take that money and use it to buy a boat in Mexico. They would later use to smuggle drugs. Yeah. They wanted to be gangsters. Yes. They wanted to graduate from being in this kind of marginal existence mm -hmm. to uh, a real illegitimate capitalist. Right. If they were going to wind up being on the margins anyway, they might as well be on the margins in a way that's more ambitious and more comfortable with more money you know and that's a classic this is a classic thing that happens with prison is you go in just kind of a fuck up and you come out with these ambitions in some cases it doesn't seem like this is what happened with uh, the clutter killers but come out with much greater skills and contacts Oh, definitely. And, and yeah. I, I would say that's that's the case here. You you go in and you meet people who yes. actually are professional criminals. And yes. by professional criminals, I mean that in, in both sense. They know how to do these things. Yeah. You know, we, we started out this with a kind of like a tongue in cheek title of people's history of violence, kind of yeah. combining that Howard Zinn with the uh, with the comic. Yeah. But the truth is, is that you get down to it and these are skills. Yes. Um. Yeah, I mean, that's actually something that the, the director, Michael Mann, is really good with. Yeah. He said he emphasizes the ways in which prison is necessary, not just for social networks, so it's necessary for that, but it's actually people, thie professional thieves and various other types of criminals, I think pimps do this as well, like they pass on their knowledge because there is a set of skills involved yeah. and, it's, and it's, operating procedures. It's a trade and they share it through oral history, essentially, yeah. in prison.
so let, let's talk about the prison. So neither Smith nor Hickok, however, had killed anyone or even especially gotten beyond penny anti-criminality yeah. until they passed through the decaying, lightless netherworld that was the Kansas State Penitentiary at Lansing. Something that's completely ignored in every rendition of the case I've heard of, the responsibility of this place. So just to talk a little bit about it, I did find a statistic very soon after they got out in the summer of, of 1959. So this is from September of 1960. The KSP Lansing at that time held, was, held 1,600 inmates and only had a capacity for 1,148. So it, they're just cramming people into cells at that point, way over capacity. Uh, the building was actually constructed in the 1860s, when Kansas had just become a state yeah. after brutal internal civil war, oh, yes. with a you know classically bourgeois eye to building this prison to contain all of the pro you know lost or products of uh, people coming yeah. west to Kansas and not making it, but they still wanted to make this prison uh, revenue neutral, mm. as they like to say in the turning business. social waste to good account. Right. So, in other words. This prison that they built, it's supposed to contain crime and all of the criminals who can't be hung. It's not supposed to cost the public a thing. And in other words, this is a tight-fisted place made by tight-fisted, hard people. Mm. So how do they make it not cost the public a thing if they're paying to build this prison and put people in it? Uh, one, obviously not giving them anything mm -hmm. nice at yeah. all in terms of food or clothing or anything like that. Uh, but also... This thing was a penal like penal labor colony mm -hmm. par excellence. This place at first made a wagon was a wagon factory building wagons for the uh, not just the state but the public to sell off. But more importantly, they cited it where it was because they knew that there was coal. Mm -hmm. And later they would then use that coal to also make bricks and brickyard. But the main use at Kansas State Penitentiary, the only prison in the state, was as a coal mine. Hmm. And that remained the case from the 1870s, 1880s, all the way to when it was closed. They closed the coal pit because it was mostly exhausted and there were better coal pits nearby in 1947. Wow. So that's, that's you know, 75 or more years of, uh, of convict labor eventually playing out a mine. Yeah. Hmm. And, and literally just cramming these convicts extremely underfed, under threat of real torture. And I mean, the torture described by Lester Douglas is just brutal whippings with hoses. Yeah. Um, simulated drowning was a big one. Hmm. It seemed like uh, he, he described it as the water cure. Apparently, every American prison had a different interpretation of what, quote unquote, water cure was supposed to be. But in his interpretation is that it's pretty obviously a you know a dunking and drowning yeah, type thing. They, and they use that in that that might be an example of domestic blowback of US imperialism, because that was infamous for being what the troops would do to Filipinos yeah. uh during the insurrection and when the US after the US took over the Philippines in the 1890s. The water cure, that's what they called it. And there was various means of it. So sometimes it was simulated drowning, sometimes it was something like waterboarding. Other times it was just pumping your stomach full of often filthy water yeah. until you puked. Yeah. But in this case, it really does seem to have been like a waterboarding type yeah. thing. That, that was the what they had to drive prisoners into the mines to, again, make this thing yeah. revenue neutral. Eventually, convict labor for profit as well as torture was phased out in Kansas. 
not due to, you know, not, not due, I would say, primarily due to just like, you know, middle class, this is bad to torture mm. people, reform, but actually due to the labor movement. Mm. There was a very, very strong pressure to end convict labor of yes. any kind. Because obviously, if you have this coal mine going and you're a coal miner in West Virginia or Pennsylvania, right. those are people scabbing on you. Yes. It's competing with and you. Involuntarily. It's, yeah. It's involuntary scabbing, which undercuts your wages. And it's in, in many cases, you know, is it a front, you know, that labor should be dignified. Yes. That labor has an inherent dignity to it and that convict labor, treating labor as a punishment is, you know, uh, undermines that. Exactly. So they did phase this out, but the state still had this problem of prison costs money mm. and they don't have a re they're just starting to get the sense of like, maybe they should be rehabilitating prisoners right. rather than just trying to house them and make it as cheap as possible. But at that time, by the time they get to the 1950s, they're in, still in what's called the uh, the state use phase of this prison. Mm. They want to make it cost as little as possible. They can't just run it as a coal mine anymore. Mm -hmm. So what the state of Kansas does is they have these prisoners primarily doing large amounts of state use labor, i.e. making license plates, mm. um, painting cars, working on the brickyard, and then using all of those things to defray the costs of state institutions. So yeah. the state DMV doesn't have to paint the license right. plates or stamp them because prisoners are doing that yeah. for essentially free. Yes, I think sometimes we have an idea that like a, a prison, even in America, might be some kind of uh, like slightly benevolent Stalinism. Mm. Like everything's provided for them, but they're under really, really tight discipline. Yeah, you're three hots and a cot. Yeah, and that is not the case. You're getting the worst of the worst, and it's an extreme like high deprivation environment. Mm. The reason that you work in this type of prison is because you need to actually get paid these tiny little, like yeah. almost company script amounts to just pay for your basic uh, canteen right. commissary. Ability to call home. Yep. Yeah. So by the 1950s, by the way, this is still the same building as it mm. was in the 1860s. It is 90 plus years old. Wow. It was- I assume it's not still there or is it? It is and it's still old. Oh, wow. It's, it's still the same building? Yeah. God. They've renovated it sort yeah. of, but uh, as I found out from Eric Swanson's YouTube channel, uh, it is not renovated that good. Yeah. And the the way they have this thing stacked, uh, where it's like four uh, stacks high of, uh, of cells, they only kind of got rid of part of that because it, in revolts in the 1960s and 1980s and even the 2000s where you have like inmate uprisings inside Lansing, uh, they discovered very quickly that inmates could throw guards down from the top floors. Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, this place was the subject of several inmate uprisings in mm. the 1960s uh, over the conditions. But by the 1950s already, as it's nearing its 100th birthday, and both Smith and Hickok are going through there, this building is decaying and just infested with vermin. Mm. There's rats, there's mice crawling over the place, cockroaches, and they complain about this in their letters. The inmate's life is is brutal and it's mean. And in this high deprivation environment, you know, rather than being this kind of uh, yeah, you know, three hots in a cot place, like mm -hmm. you said, Peter, it is 
like black market of everything. Yeah. And the way Swanson talked about it, it's still that way today. Uh, I was actually really surprised by how many things from the old culture of Lansing, going back to the early, early days when it's just primarily like a coal mine prisoners, mm. uh, kept going. Like he would talk, about, Swanson would talk about how before getting up, any inmate would knock on the table mm. uh, to signify that they were getting up and make everyone, everyone stands down and knows that you're not about to start. Yeah. Oh, interesting. And apparently, because that's also um, what Douglas says, that goes back to when uh, Lansing was on the silent system, oh. where prisoners were literally barred from talking to each other in common areas. Shame. Instead, you just had to be silent all the time, unless you were down in the mine with your fellow prisoners, oh. I guess, or on the brickyard. And uh, they still use terms that, that he uses in way rougher contexts, uh, actually. So one of the markets that's in this type of environment is, of course, sex. Yeah. And I don't mean like it, it's not something as, as simple and as stupid as like, oh, don't drug so yeah. and all the other fucked up jokes that people have about prison rape. There's a lot of people in there that Douglas talks about and that Swanson talks about who are stuck with no no family members dropping money for them. Mm -hmm. They don't have wealthy people on the outside. They are they were poor when they went in mm -hmm. and they need canteen yeah uh they need shoelaces yeah they need tooth powder toothpaste mm -hmm. and so they end up selling sex yeah. or they sell it for protection mm -hmm. and get labeled punks and what i was surprised by with swanson is actually they still use the term punk for mm. like someone who's in this like sexual clientele yeah. like surf relationship in lansing today mm. uh just as they did in douglas's time yeah, I, I read a memoir, you know, obviously somewhat early, but I read a memoir from uh, someone who was a criminal in the 70s. And, you know, he gets out and out of prison and he he goes to rock clubs and stuff. Yeah. And he first hears about this thing called punk rock. He's like, that's the worst, last thing you want. <laughs> he winds up liking it, but, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, to, to me, I wonder, there's an undertone with a lot of uh, Perry Smith's obsessions where he's like, I'm against all sexual deviance. Yeah. You know, where you really get a sense, particularly of a guy, since he's already been molested as a young right. man, that this environment where people get forced into sex people get sold for sex and once you are in that kind of a relationship that you get sold by the mm -hmm. armed inmate more powerful inmate yeah. guy in a gang douglas oddly like you know this just shows how dated the book is and not necessarily recommending douglas's book although it's super interesting you have to take it for what it sure. is is he doesn't label this as like the problem of prison rape or the problem of prison sexual abuse. He calls it the problem of prison homosexuality. And uh, you get a sense that that's just like, that is the glasses through which they were they were seeing this. Swanson talks about being the problem of, you know, predators and what he calls booty bandits. Mm, yeah. The booty bandit being a guy who's like trying to kind of con people into mm. a sexual relationship and then the predator being the, the violent rapist. Yeah. But in this dark market as well, in addition to that sort of thing, as well as drugs, mm -hmm. as well as alcohol, all of which are there in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and on to the present, uh, because the guards are bringing it in. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of desperate people who have family members giving them money, mm -hmm. so that's what they're bringing, that's who's bringing it in, even today. Oh, yeah. Allegedly. Yes. <laughs> there are a number of scores that are circulating as well as skills, mm. right? I'll show you how to do how to get into this house. I yeah. know I know a place that's doing this here. And those scores on the outside, if you're deprived prisoner, a poor prisoner, 
become a kind of currency you can exchange your papers on the inside. Right. And one aspect of making them do this physical labors, you wind up with access to tools. If you mm -hmm. knew how to use them on the outside, then you can teach people how to, on the inside, how to use them and potentially in things like burglaries. Yep. Which is why they should really, you know, if you're going to do this whole prison labor thing, you should really just make all the prisoners uh, like uh, write ad copy and like, <laughs> uh, design, you know, do graphic design because you're not going to use that to burgle any buildings or kill anyone. No. Probably. But, you know, the, the thing is, is like that deprivation makes people really, yeah, really much like, skills. Yeah. 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 I'm sure they could find a way to, to do some fun stuff with copywriting. So it, but it's in this context of talking about like scores or jobs or whatever on the outside, kind of exchanging those as, as chits, as currency that we see enter the story again, William Floyd Wells, the likely disgruntled ex-employee of Herb Clutter, who didn't stay for the whole season. Mm -hmm. Uh and by all accounts, made his pitch of a, quote, cinch plot to rob Clutter and get a safe from Herb Clutter's house. And this, it turns out, was not like board conversation. So in Wells' story, and frankly, the official story, Smith and Hickok are inmates, they're cellmates, they form a bond, like we said, probably over their common circumstances. Mm -hmm. Smith, at one point, actually attempts to escape. He secretes a bunch of, like, tools in and think, tries to get out, even though he had, like, only a couple months left for his potential parole. But Smith has moved out. He's released. And Hickok is still there at KSP Lansing. Mm. And in walks this guy, Floyd Wells, who pretends to be a new inmate. Floyd Wells actually had served two other terms. Huh. At, he passed through KSP Lansing two other times. And so he's a little bit of a con artist already. But right. he begins, in his account... To have just a board conversation saying, oh, yeah, I know a place there. I, I once worked on a place where there was lots of money, mm. uh, even $10,000 paid out to the employees at harvest time. Mm. And in his own account, Floyd Wells says that Hickok just keeps asking questions like, where was this place that there were you were paid that much money? Where's the safe that it was paid out of? Were you inside the house? What room is the house to go mm. into? This turns out to be completely a lie. Like demonstrably so, but I feel like I should probably tell you since, and also I think you asked this last time in the episode, how did Floyd Wells get to Lansing Yeah, uh, for his third time? And this is one account where I discovered a real story. Oh, nice. Myself, and I'll love, tell it love, here. Love to, love to see that. So Floyd Wells, who's really kind of the, the mystery character of In Cold Blood, mm. this inmate who both makes the crime happen, mm. either by accident or intentionally, and also is the one who rats out the two defendants and gets them caught. Yeah. Because without them, kind of shit out of luck mm. on the investigation. Floyd Wells, in Capote's account and in Gary McAvoy's account too, is former veteran, uh, kind of a small time crook who wants to open up a lawnmower store. And so in order to open up- He has a up, passion for lawnmowers. You know, we all have our passions, Peter. So oh, no. Some of us do true crime. Some of us do history. Some of us are really into intelligence documents. They need to show to 16-year-olds. And some of us want to open a lawnmower store. It's a, it's a, it's a perfectly prominent dream. Yeah. So in the course of wanting to open this lawnmower store, he breaks into a oh. lawnmower store. Oh, yeah. That makes sense. Because that's where the lawnmower is. That's, that's where you could then put them in your own store. And then you're the guy who's selling the lawnmower. Yeah. 
wonder if you get into like the like the classic drug dealer situation. Are you trying to sell me back my own shit? <laughs> in their accounts, he gets caught like red-handed, like it's a dumb caper, he's a dumb criminal. It, it, it kind of shows that he's like not a sophisticated mm -hmm. criminal, right? This was such a dumb thing. And he really was a good-natured guy who once worked for Herb Clutter and had very good memories of him, right? Wrong. I found two articles from a little-known Kansas newspaper called The Parsons Sun. Mm. It turned out Floyd Wells was stealing lawnmowers from all over the place um, and trans transporting them across state lines oh, to Oklahoma okay. with an accomplice. All right, that makes more sense, actually. As because, a yeah, Floyd Wells was a procurer of stolen merchandise, yeah. and he was taking it across the border to a fence in a fucking other state. Yeah, like that's not necessarily like the best move because it could get like the federales involved, but it indicates a much higher level of organization than let's go to the lawnmower store, take all of their lawnmowers, and I'll be the lawnmower store. Yeah. In, in a sense, I wonder if he could argue that like he wasn't really lying. He's like, I, I took them to like the underground lawnmower yeah, store. The people's lawnmower store. Yeah, yeah. So he, he acquired lawnmowers at, at a five-finger discount and was selling them at a substantial markup. So as it says in the Parsons Sun, William Floyd Wells of Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania? Yeah. So he want, at one time no did Pittsburgh, live in Pittsburgh, Kansas. even though he was born in Kansas, raised in Kansas. Okay. I think he just worked there in like a factory or something. Yeah, here's like a really cool town. Yeah. So William Floyd Wells of Pittsburgh was sentenced to a year in the county jail by Judge Jerome Hammond in Columbus on a petty larceny charge. Wells was accused of stealing a power lawnmower owned by Miss Raymond Boy of Columbus last May 22nd. That's May 22nd, 1958. Then we have on June 12th, 1959, the next year, Oswego, Kansas, Floyd Wells, 32, of Columbus, was sentenced to a term of five to ten years. Mm. Yeah, a lot for a lawnmower. Yeah. Event. In the state penitentiary at Lansing by Judge Hal Heiler today, after pleading guilty to second-degree burglary of the Williamson store here early in May. He was also sentenced to term from one to five years on a larceny charge in connection with the burglary charge. The sentence is to run concurrently at the same time. Wells and a companion were arrested by Oklahoma authorities after their car was wrecked. Merchandise taken from the Oswego store was found in the wrecked machine. In other words, they took the lawnmowers from this caper where they robbed this store in Williamson, Kansas, blind. Mm. They took them across the border through Oklahoma, possibly to Oklahoma, possibly further down to Texas. Right. Who knows? To pawn that stuff and their car broke down. Mm. The police pull over. They see them on the side of the road. They see the merchandise. And if I had to guess, it was so clearly from the store yeah. that they were able to contact the people back in Kansas to track down their stolen lawnmowers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, once again, cars. Cars and their failures entering into these yeah. situations. The real culprit here? Cars. Mm. Yeah, we're a new urbanist. We're an, we're an urbanist podcast. So all of which I mean to say is that Floyd Wells is a more sophisticated professional criminal mm. than any of these accounts suggest. Yeah. And he's a more connected criminal. He has yeah. fences. He has fences in other states. Mm. And for our really green mind years listeners, no offense. Uh, offense is someone who buys and sells stolen goods. They are a broker. Yeah. You you need them to make crime make sense. Yes. Uh, especially for big ticket items like lawnmowers and cars. Yeah. Stuff that's difficult to sell out of the the you know your coat. So one thing I will go back to acknowledging Gary McAvoy 
as being a great author on, is he uncovered that Wells had tried to cash this same job to rob Herb Clutter in some capacity with two other inmates, Frank Harper and John Sable, mm. who turned down the job before Wells tried pitching this score again with a third inmate, Dick Hickok. So Wells did not like board engaging conversation. He had a job either from him or given to him by someone else on the outside to sell to someone else as a piece of currency inside. So furthermore, when Wells did give this job to Hickok, according to both Hickok and Smith, he gave Richard Hickok a detailed map that would allow Hickok to find the Clutter farmhouse in Holcomb, Kansas, mm -hmm. and navigate inside it to find the safe that he would rob. Uh, this map specified the different rooms for the Clutter children, Mr. Clutter's office, and the master bedroom, and the basement of the house. Now, I'm not saying that, that Clutter's house was a mansion, but it was like a modern big house. It's still there today. But more importantly, how would a guy who had never been to Holcomb, Kansas, which, you know, doesn't have street streetlights yeah. at the time, and his main road is the only one that's paved, mm -hmm. How would a guy from all the way across the eastern part of the state in Olathe, Kansas, who's never been there, be able to find this house in the middle of the fucking night yeah. without a map? Yeah. So, in other words, this map really seems to have existed. Mm -hmm. Wells, for his part, later denied ever making a map or a diagram for Hickok. So, besides the fact that Hickok and Smith both separately interviewed make reference to it, there does seem to be a good deal of evidence that this map existed. That in addition to having this score in mind, that Wells also had a description of how to get to the house, what was inside the house, how to navigate around it, and gave it to Hickok. Um, there's a problem with that. And that is, you might be saying to yourself, well, Wells did work for Herbert Clutter, so maybe he knew the inside of the house, knew how to get there, and so on. Mm -hmm. Wells did not work for Herbert Clutter at a time when the family had moved into the new house. Mm -hmm. And it's not like the houses were right next to each other. Yeah. They were living in a totally different part of like the Garden City area at the time that Floyd Wells worked for them. It was like mm -hmm. harvesting their fields. Mm -hmm. The house was under construction. I actually did check the um, the Garden City land records and found that the official date of that property being there, uh, that house on that plot is 1948. So Wells was employed at the time. But according to all the newspaper accounts at the time, the house wasn't finished until 49 when he's already left. And no one's moved in until 49 when he's left. So, so going over it, what yeah. we know yeah. is that it seems affirmed that Wells spoke to Hickok about Clutter. Yes. There's the allegation that they had a map and the likelihood they had a map because otherwise, how would they find this farm? And how would they even find their way around the house? Right. Yeah. They say that Wells provided the map. Wells said he didn't. It seems like probably he did until you take on board the fact that he did not work for, uh, or, or that he drew the map. But he can't have drawn the map because he wasn't there when that house was built. In other words, if he did, if Wells did give them a, a map, map, he didn't draw it. And he didn't have the information in his head to draw it. Yeah. Yeah. So he could have maybe found where the location of the house was. Yeah. Maybe. And I find even that impossible because he hadn't worked for Herb Clutter for nine years. But they got a map somewhere. Yeah. But they got a map somewhere. 
And they got the job idea from Wells. Yes. And as he admitted. And Wells, as we're seeing, is a more sophisticated criminal entrepreneur than he was made out to be by Capote and McAvoy. Exactly. So he is a sort of person who might possibly get access to information like that from people on the outside looking to outsource jobs. Looking to, to potentially sell a job to kill clutter, rob clutter. Mm. I think it's more having kill clutter to a more professional criminal mm. and uh, particularly one who had a grudge. Mm. Like Floyd Wells almost certainly did, being that Clutter was a tight-fisted guy who could yeah. have easily fired a guy like Floyd Wells. Oh, sure. So, Where are my lawnmowers going? So, in other words, just to recap, right now, at this point in 1959, Floyd Wells is likely kind of part of a, a, a system. He himself has been kicked up by this rural economy change. Mm -hmm. But by this point, he's a sophisticated professional criminal with a job and that job he's trying to option off to people he sees is willing to take it. Mm -hmm. Smith for his part is a violent enough guy that he could be brought into a job like this. And a guy like Hickok would want to bring him into a job like this. the curious thing that I think we'll have to deal with more on our final episode is that Floyd Wells sold this job to Hickok by all accounts as a job to go into the house and get a safe. A safe that everyone who knew Herbert Clutter said he never had. That he was a guy who just wrote checks for everything. He didn't keep cash on hand. So if he did have a safe, what was in it? And what the hell safe are they talking about? Mm. This might be an unresolvable question. But the fascinating thing is that from Richard Hickok's own letters to Nations, we have his claim many times that this was a job that would involve taking out Herbert Clutter, that he knew that going in, and that he knew he was getting paid for it. Mm -hmm. And he was getting paid for it by an intermediary. Mm -hmm. Not Wells, but another guy on the outside who Wells had put him in touch with. And I think uh, I think that's probably where we should leave it yeah. for now. Next episode, we'll go into our reconstruction of the events based on the loads of very interesting evidence that Gary McAvoy unearthed and how this all puts together. Hmm. Thanks again, listeners. Yep. Thanks folks. Subscribe to us on Patreon yeah. if you haven't already. We'll love it. See you next time. Bye-bye.